This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien. And you are listening to Everyday Wealth. Obviously, the big news this week is the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. We're recording this midweek, so we'll update you uh, as to the time of this recording. And, of course, we'll look at some of the implications for investors, what's unfolding and what could it all mean. Then a little bit later in the show, we'll talk about how you navigate love and money for a, a married couple or a divorcing couple or a second married couple and all the complicated questions that that brings. And then we'll talk about balance. What do you do if you have a very concentrated stock position in your portfolio? Uh, If you have a question or you'd like us to cover something on a future show, go right to everydaywealth.com where you can submit your questions. Of course, we would love to hear from you. All right, Gene, let's jump in. Boy, oh boy. And a lot is happening. So we're talking about the invasion by Russia of two Ukrainian territories. And the president has called this officially an invasion and with NATO has imposed sanctions. And so let's take a look at what this means to Russia what this means to Europe and what this means in the context of U.S. investors and how you might be feeling this in your portfolio. So those sanctions are intended to have an immediate impact on Russia and the Russian economy. Germany has cut off this important natural gas pipeline that was scheduled to go online. It cost billions of dollars. Russia was preparing to use that to move gas to much of Europe. That's sort of the focus, right, of their economy. I mean, the the Russian economy is not very dynamic, and the focus is gas. gas, right? You think about Russia, you think about pipelines, you think about gas, and yes, this is intended to cause a good deal of pain. The other thing that has happened is the U.S. and NATO combined have cut off global financing to two Russian banks and to three of what they call Russian elites, oligarchs, basically families that are very close to Putin. And what they're doing is trying to make sure that those in Putin's inner circle feel the same pain that the Russian middle class is expected to feel. This is essentially the dissolution of a peace treaty that was put into place in 2015. And I don't think people are shocked. What's been the reaction in the market? Were the markets stunned? Was what happened? No, the markets were not stunned. We saw a drop in the S&P. Just to put it in perspective, the S&P has been heading down. It pushed the S&P 500 into correction territory, down 10%, but it had already been heading down. And so I think what the markets really don't like is uncertainty. Mm. The markets don't like not knowing what's going to happen next. And that is by far the bigger worry. The other big factor in play here is oil and gas. And it's important to point out, energy has actually been the best performing sector in the S&P 500 so far this year. It was up 22% through Monday of this week. The overall 
index, the overall S&P 500, was down about 8.5% during that same time. The fact that prices are up at the pump has very little to do with this and a lot to do with the overall inflationary pressures that we're feeling. And when people go to fill up their car, as I did yesterday, you take note that the average price is about $3.5 a gallon, that oil prices are up about 60 65% from where they were a year ago. And this turmoil could cause an additional spike. So sanctions we know would hurt the Russian middle class and sort of lower, um, not necessarily Putin, who I think historically has kind of blown off sanctions. Mm-hmm. And clearly, even though the U.S. is not getting the bulk of its oil from Russia, you've got a global energy market that could be impacted because, of course, Europe is getting a big chunk of its oil and gas from Russia. Well, that's a variable, right? And we'll be watching it very, very closely. I think it's interesting, though, to look at what has traditionally happened in times of war. And and this is not a full-scale war at this point, or at least it wasn't when we were taping. Um, but let's bring in Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner, John McCafferty. Hi, John. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for morning, having me. Morning, John. Nice to talk to you. Nice to have you, you with us that. again. John, when we look at war times, when we think about what typically happens in war, we have this perception that investors flee to safety, and mm-hmm. safety equals treasuries and treasury bonds, and, and they do tend to rally or do well during times of global turmoil. But surprisingly, the stock market has also shown itself to be a good place to be during times of war. And so I'm wondering, as you talk to your clients when crises heat up around the globe, what do you recommend they do in terms of adjusting their investments? Often the advice is do nothing. And that might sound strange, but if you've already established a well-defined investment strategy, aside from some periodic rebalancing, you really shouldn't need to do a whole lot. And Gene, you you hit the nail on the head. The market really does not like uncertainty. We're, We're surrounded by uncertainty at the moment. The market has reflected that. Human nature would compel maybe someone to sell stocks as they're going down. So you're selling an asset class as it's losing value, and you may take those proceeds and put it into an asset class, something more secure that's actually increasing in value. So you're selling something that's going on sale and you're potentially buying something that is increasing in value. And that is ideally something we want to have people avoid. Can I stop you there? Because that sounds contradictory and I don't know if I'm just confused. You know, that's a great question, Soledad. How I phrased that might have sounded counterintuitive. So what can sometimes happen in periods of uncertainty an investor can end up selling low and buying high, meaning they're selling stocks as they're going down. So that's the selling low part. And they may shift those proceeds into an asset class, say gold, where it's going up. And so you're doing the opposite of what has historically worked for investors, where we all have heard the mantra, buy low, sell high. In these temporary periods of uncertainty, there is the chance that an investor could do the opposite. Hmm. So you think you're getting rid of your risk, but actually 
you're just embracing more risk <laughs> down the road. It can be incredibly emotional and <laughs> difficult to stick with a strategy like that when you're in the midst of a volatile situation, when you feel like everything is cratering around you. And, and there is, frankly, a drumbeat on the news about crisis, crisis, crisis. Uh, and of course, there is a crisis unfolding, no doubt. But I think there's been a lot of conversations around what's happening in the markets that you're actually not seeing happening in the markets. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And as I was going through my talking points with my clients, when I look at history, and I mean, literally going back 40 years, 1980, the Iran hostage crisis, 1985, Fernand Marcos being ousted from the Philippines, 1986, the U.S. bombed Libya, 1989, the U.S. invades Panama and ousted Noriega, 1989 again, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Then we have Iraq invading Kuwait in 1990, the Gulf War in 1991, the Somalian Civil War in 1991. Then we had the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina from 1992 to 1995. There's just numerous examples, unrest, geopolitical strife. In those moments, it hasn't been easy to deal with them. But if you maintain a long-term perspective, let the uncertainty play itself out. The closer we get to a resolution, the market likes that. And once again, there's no way of knowing how everything will unfold here. But when I spoke with clients around March, April, May of 2020, we all know what was going on at that point in time. Unemployment claims just catapulted. They went from one report to the next. They went from 200,000 to 735,000. So this was late April, early May. I reached out to as many clients as I could. And my message was this, brace for impact because a big number is coming. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be big. And sure enough, the very next report, unemployment claims jumped from 735,000 to roughly 3 million. Do you know what the market did on that day? It went up 4%. Oh. So it, it's, it doesn't always work that way, but this is why often an advisor will say, as long as you have a defined investment strategy, you've already done your job. That applies to this circumstance as well. You know, if, if you're out there wondering, hey, what are investors doing right now? Well, according to the Wall Street Journal and according to my conversations, let me give you some, some insights here. So in 2021, the S&P was up 27%. According to Bank of America, globally, a trillion dollars was invested into stock funds, stock ETFs. Now, that's globally. That's not just in the United States. That was more than the cumulative amount over the preceding 19 years. That's a big number. So now we, we find ourselves in 2022, and initially the markets pulled back, I'm generalizing here, by about 7 or 8%. Well, frankly, that's healthy. That's normal market behavior. Now, in the first seven weeks of 2022, investors have pulled roughly $180 billion out of cash and out of bonds. And of that $180 billion, $50 billion has found its way into stocks. I think that's a smart thing to do. It can be, depending on your situation, because it's not just about Russia and Ukraine. There's a lot of other variables going on right now, and you have to take into account inflation. You have to take into account the fact that our economy, the United States, we're actually in a pretty good place right now. We have the good fortune to be geographically insulated. We're economically insulated. Soledad, you said earlier, and rightfully so, the Russian economy is not dynamic. The United States economy is incredibly dynamic. We have states that have a larger economy than most countries. I think that the most important thing that you've said in the last few minutes was that in 2020, you picked up the phone, you called your clients, and you told them to brace for impact. Right, right. And, and just making sure that whatever's going on in the external environment, 
that you have a good understanding of how this influences or may impact your internal environment, your personal economy. And I'll say it again, as long as you have a properly structured, diversified portfolio, you really don't need to do a whole lot. Well, if you're at a loss, John, if you are thinking, maybe I don't know what to do next, what's the next move? Navigating volatility like this situation with Russia is exactly why we stress education so much with our clients. It's just this sort of information we provide in our free webinars, like the one we have coming up. It's titled Three Strategies to Help Preserve and Protect Your Wealth. It's Tuesday, March 1st. You can participate either at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're wanting to enroll, you can just visit planEFE.com. And EFE as in Edelman Financial Engines. That's right. And when we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to leave the global marketplace and start talking about domestic affairs as in your money and your relationships. I'm Jean Chatsky with Soledad O'Brien on Everyday Wealth, and we'll be right back. On March 1st, Edelman Financial Engines is hosting a brand new webinar. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky, back with Soledad O'Brien, Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, John McCafferty, along for the ride. So last week, we talked about elder fraud. We talked about how, unfortunately, people can be duped out of millions, if not billions of dollars through romance schemes. And if you missed it, you can grab the podcast for any of our past episodes at everydaywealth.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. But this week, we thought we'd talk about money through the lens of romantic relationships. How does your love life really play into the ways that you are managing your money for better or for worse. And just because you decide that you love somebody enough to partner with them does not mean that you have the same wants or the same needs or the same financial timeline. And the fact that we hate to talk about money makes it worse. Yeah. Well, I think what ends up happening, people will get married and then discover all kinds of information about their partner's financial health or often lack thereof and and recognize sort of what they've married into. And it can be, I mean, devastating, obviously, for a relationship. But I have read that the number one reason for divorce is because of financial issues. Is that true? I that mean, is true, yeah. actually. Doesn't that, surprise me. No, there have been surveys on this. And interestingly, in my own life, I don't like to talk about it. And and you would think I talk about this every gonna, day. What? I'm so. I, oh my god, we could do an entire show could, on this. <laughs> but I, I, my husband and I actually schedule times to talk about money. We're going to do this. We're going to talk about what's going on over the next few years, next few months. But we also talk about it with our financial advisor. Let's bring John McCafferty. He's an Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner. I'm curious if if you have seen the biggest arguments, debates, discomfort, however you want to describe it, when it comes to navigating a conversation with a couple about their finances. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, you both bring up a lot of really good points. You're both absolutely correct where I think the most important thing you can do is have the conversation. And like a lot of things related to personal finance, 
try to have the conversation before you buy the house or before you move or whatever it happens to be. Definitely having the conversation, allowing a professional to facilitate the process. Walk us through a specific example, like because I, I, I like that advice, but I'll yeah, give you an right. example out of my own life. My husband and I were trying to decide if we could not just afford to buy the apartment that we were looking at, but also the one next door so that we could combine them and only have to renovate one time. Mm. I'm the more conservative fiscally in our relationship. He's a little bit more of a risk taker. And he was like, yes, we can do this. We can totally afford to do this. But it made me nervous. So we actually sat down with our financial advisor and we ran the numbers and we ran different scenarios. You know, what happens if we keep working this long? What happens if one of us has to stop working? What happens if we need to divert some resources to take care of a child or an older parent? Like what happens if the markets tank? And we ran through enough of these scenarios in order to get comfortable with the risk that we were taking. Did but you do I, it? We did do it. Oh. But I agree with you. I don't think it's easy. I have this story that I clipped years ago out of the Wall Street Journal with the headline, He Says Maine, She Says Florida. And it was about retirement and about the fact that couples not only couldn't agree on when they were going to retire, they couldn't agree on where they were going to retire because they had never talked about it. We do have that. And I appreciate Eugene sort of uh, bringing that up. And just this might be more of a local example. I, I work in the Washington, D.C. area. We have a lot of people that come here for their careers and end up relocating. And so I do have that conversation very regularly about where and how are we actually going to retire and getting two people together to actually have that conversation and pointing out to them the benefits of, you know, buying or renting, making sure that they're aware of their social security benefits. In this region, we have a fair amount of people that have pensions, making sure that they coordinate their income benefits in retirement, tie that into how to invest their assets. That comes up a lot um, in terms of how much risk they can actually afford to take on versus what they believe or perceive they can take on. It's really getting people in the room together. There's also forced honesty when you're in the room, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you keep people honest. I remember vividly being behind a woman in, in a local clothing store. She handed her credit card over to the cashier. She said, put $200 on this card and I'm going to give you cash for the rest. The woman looked at her and she's like, oh, you don't want your husband to know mm. how much you are paying for the rest of this purchase. There's data on this. It's called financial infidelity. 43% of Americans say that they have financially cheated on their partner. They've have you spent... ever financially cheated on your partner? No, because I keep my money separate, which we will discuss. Interesting. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, financial infidelity to me sounded something like horrifically, awfully, whatever. But then, I mean, if you're talking about holding secret debts, using an undisclosed credit card. Haven't done that. Haven't done that. Having a hidden checking or savings account. Haven't, haven't done, done that. that. But I didn't realize that financial infidelity, also including spending more than your partner would be comfortable with. Spending more than your partner knows that you're spending. It's those purchases that you hide in the closet. I think disclosure matters. It's not so much the purchase, it's the disclosure of the purchase. And so this doesn't happen a lot, but I have encountered this in meetings where one member of the couple will leave the room the remaining partner will sit there and say, okay, well, I've got this or that. And when the other 
person comes in the room, I'm saying, all right, now tell them what you just told me. And How I, does and I that really, go over? It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. But you, you really have to do that. And I'll be honest, we, you can tell when, when someone's withholding information. And it's their prerogative, but there's no real reward in withholding something. And so with a couple, I'll help you develop structure, but ultimately do what works for the two of you. And then use me as the advisor to sort of facilitate these conversations, to make sure that you're having them regularly. Definitely involve a third party. And by the way, there's no one right way to set up your financial life. If you want joint accounts on everything, that's fine if it works for you. If you want yours, mine, and ours accounts, that's fine. If it works for you, you just have to understand what's going on in your own life. But John, you sometimes need strategies, actually, to put you on the right track. I know you've got a webinar coming up that can help people. Tell us a little bit more about this webinar. Absolutely. So we have an upcoming webinar. It's Tuesday, March 1st, titled Three Strategies to Help Preserve and Protect Your Wealth. You can participate either at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Visit planefe.com. We got to pause here for just a sec. We'll be back on the other side with more on remarrying and protecting your assets. Every situation is different. Give us a call at 833-PLAN-EFE. Planefe.com. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'm here with Gene Chatsky and Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, John McCafferty. John, thank you for being with us. We've been talking about the intersection of love and money, but what about couples that are marrying for a second time or you've been married before or have children and other financial obligations outside of that current relationship? What are some of the additional issues that are facing couples as they plan to remarry? It makes all of this much more complicated, doesn't it, Gene? Because people are marrying so much later, we're going into relationships already with these fully formed financial lives. Like we are financial adults more likely than perhaps our parents were. My mother was mentioning the other day she got married at 20. But That's young. That is very young. It's very, very young. And if you're doing it for the second time, you've got another layer of questions and obstacles. So, John, if someone comes into your office and they say... Great news, John. We've decided to get married. She's got three kids from a previous relationship. I've got two kids from a previous relationship, and we're going to get married next month. When you think of like, okay, here's the checklist of some of those things we've really got to cover, what's mm-hmm. on that list for you? Starting out as is, is mundane as it might sound, I want to know, do both of you have an awareness about how much you spend every month? And tough to get people on the same page on that topic. It's really helpful to find that out because you get a sense of, okay, do they actually talk about their finances or not? So starting out with what do you spend every month, um, I'll then go through uh, what do you have in, in invested assets. And from there, we'll sort of delve into where do you see yourselves in retirement and how does your level of spending and your level of assets tie into that. And then I'll go into your income benefits in retirement. And so this is a really important piece to cover. Generally, if you get remarried, you're no longer entitled to a previous spouse's Social Security. So I just want to make them aware of of certain circumstances like that and make sure that both of them have clarity on 
if you're remarrying, what, how does that change your, your income benefits in retirement? Then it delves into estate planning, and there are certain laws in common law states, and then there are community property states. Um, what are you entitled to there? So that's, that's really the checklist. Is I would say it starts with spending, then we move on to assets. Uh, I like to cover income benefits, what you may have been entitled to, and what are you now entitled to. And then I like to tie things up with estate planning and make sure that they really delve deeply into each one of these topics and and address whatever needs to be addressed within each topic. John, when we're talking about people in this day and age, particularly older people, often they both own homes. And selling a home in this market, particularly if you've lived in it a very, very long time, can set up a big capital gain. So what's your advice to couples who actually want to cohabitate? Well, that's a great question. So first, we want to explore tax implications. If they, if one couple was to sell a property, uh, we talk them through, are they exempt from taxation, depending on how long they've lived in that property? Um, and then from there, if we identify the tax implications, we can see how the proceeds of that sale would influence their overall financial picture. Um, then we'll delve into, okay, now if you're cohabitating, how is that going to impact your cash flow? Um, and so we want to hit it on all different points, whether it's um, from tax implications, how will such a decision impact your monthly cash flow? And then from there, how will it impact the greater good, if you will, the long-term perspective of where you stand financially. And then once we open it up to that, again, we're talking about sort of a decision today to potentially free up capital. How can that influence your future? Um, so uh, in today's environment, the housing market is fairly healthy. And if someone does decide to sell a home, um, I'll bring in topics like retirement income, long-term care insurance. Might you need that? Might you not? Now that you have an extra lump sum of money to invest for the long term, so I really want to help people connect the dots, tie, tie the decision that they're considering now, today, and allow them to see how it can impact their future. Before you get serious, what do you earn, what do you own, and what do you owe? I think being consistent with your approach is the best way to go. It's okay if you merge accounts. It's okay if you don't. Whatever works with you, but at least when it comes to investing one's money. I think it's important to get the couple together and to help them identify what their actual risk tolerance is. Um, there usually might be one that feels they're more aggressive and the other feels they're more conservative. When we look at how their money is actually invested, it's very telling. How their money is invested isn't necessarily how they perceive themselves. And so what I want to impress upon people is that when you do get together, whether it's your first marriage or your second marriage, it can often be an incredible advantage. Um, generally, you're going to have more in assets, and you're also going to have more in retirement income. Rather than having one or two retirement income streams, you might now have three, four, five, or six. And I just want to make sure that there is consistency with how their money is invested and impress upon them that if you now, because you've decided to get together as a couple, if you now have more income streams in retirement, that actually affords you the ability or it can afford you the ability to be a little bit more growth oriented with your investments, which over the long term, that should lead to increased wealth, more control, more decisions that you'll be able to make in retirement. Um, so it's really highlighting the benefits of getting together, uh, making sure that when it comes to their investments, there is consistency and they both sort of appreciate and respect their, their individual risk tolerances and help them have a clear sense of how they complement each other. 
when we're talking about people who are particularly high earners, there are different tax implications. They call it a marriage tax penalty. Can you tell us about that? Right. Once you reach a certain income level for individual filers, it's 400000 If you're married filing jointly, it's 450000 What you may and likely will encounter would be a higher tax rate, capital gains tax rate, than someone who was in a lower income tax bracket. So generally, if you're looking at a short-term capital gain, you're probably looking at 30%. Long-term capital gain for, uh, again, the higher income earner, you're looking at more than likely 20% plus potentially a 3% surcharge for Medicare. That's a Medicare surcharge. So these are things that we want to call to your attention and weave that into either current or future decisions you may be making. You're not saying don't get married. You're just saying no, if you decide to get married, that it's likely to cost you in this particular way or that you need to right. do some planning to yep. deal with the ramifications. Absolutely. And, and this comes up a lot as well when we're talking people through the actual retirement process around age 65 when people are entitled from Medicare, usually you're, you know, you're automatically going to enroll in Part A. Um, there may also be individuals who they can delay or choose to participate in Part B. And if, you're, uh, if you've been married, filing jointly, and you have, I would say, higher than average income, you may find yourself subjected to higher Part B premiums. It's titled IRMA, Income Replacement Monthly Adjustment Amount. And once again, this is something that we want to make people aware of so that when you're getting ready to actually shove off and retire, that you're not blindsided by higher Part B premiums that has happened. And we try to avoid that as much as possible. So part of the conversation, if you're entering a new scenario in life and you now find yourself making more money, definitely not only including a financial planner, but a tax advisor at a minimum to make you aware of these things and, if necessary, to help you strategize on how to minimize that tax pain. I think that the lesson to take away from all of these conversations is that it's the conversation that matters, and you should have it with your spouse often or your partner, and you should have it with your advisor. Bring them into the loop. I thought what John said earlier about people hiding information from their financial advisor, they can't do their job. So it's like hiding information from your doctor. Exactly. Not so, super helpful. Mm -mm. So open, honest conversation. And if you need help, John, where do you go? Well, that's a great question. And it just so happens we're having a webinar coming up Tuesday, March 1st. It's titled Three Strategies to Help You Preserve and Protect Your Wealth. Once again, Tuesday, March 1st at 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. If you're interested in learning more, you can visit us online at planefe.com. And of course, EFE stands for Edelman Financial Engines. When we come back, Soledad, we're going to turn a corner. We're going to talk about concentrated stock positions and the risk that just owning a lot of one particular investment can have on your portfolio. We'll do that with Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner, John McCafferty. You're listening to Everyday Wealth. Join us Tuesday, March 1st for a brand new webinar, Three Strategies to Help Preserve and Protect Your Wealth. Discover steps you can take today to help secure a better tomorrow, like how a donor-advised fund can help you give to charity in a tax-efficient way, what to do if you own too much of one stock, and more. Our advice comes from more than 35 years of experience managing wealth in different market environments. So join us for this special virtual event, Three Strategies to Help Preserve and Protect Your Wealth, on Tuesday, March 1st. 
Register for free at planefe.com. We'll talk more about concentrated stock positions when we get back. Stay with us. Welcome back to Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. I'm Gene Chatsky. I'm here with Soledad O'Brien, John McCafferty from Edelman Financial Engines, also along for the ride. Okay, let's talk about stocks. And specifically, we want to talk about what happens when you've got one stock in particular. Maybe it's the stock of the company that you work for. Maybe it's shares in a stock that you inherited. And over time, it's become a really large part of your portfolio. I want to talk about the risks that are involved in just having one big investment like that, because I think a lot of people don't take it seriously enough. I would imagine that part of the reason people get into this predicament is that it's emotional, right? Mm -hmm. That there's some personal connection so why do people end up with these concentrated stock positions in the first place? A variety of reasons. So let's start with inheritance. There's emotion there, and one might be tied to a particular stock because maybe it's where mom or dad or grandma or grandpa worked their whole lives, and it's served them well. So there's this assumption that continuing to own or hold that stock will serve you well. It may, but it might not. So you want to be aware of that, and I would say adjust accordingly shift over to company stock. So there may be some loyalty or we often hear, you know, I worked for this company and I know kind of what direction it's heading in. Keep in mind that there can be a significant opportunity cost to continuing to own or have a larger percentage of your wealth represented by just one company. Well, you're talking about diversification. And I think the other important thing to consider is that by having a big position in the company that you work for, you are putting your job in the same bucket mm. that you're putting your portfolio, right? And That's that can point. be a very dangerous situation as well if the fortune of that company happens to turn. It's just another argument for diversifying. And then the other mm. thing, and you made this point too, is that sometimes when people have a stock that they inherited or a stock that they have from their employer, they separate it. They, they put it off to the side. They think about it as not a part of their portfolio, and that can be a mistake. They can work out for you, but I describe it as fear, not just to the downside, but fear to the upside as well. What's that? What does that mean? So the fear to the downside is obvious. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes. Sure. I mean, I've seen people literally in the financial crisis who had their whole 401k in Fannie Mae stock. It's, it's a horrible experience. You only need to go through it once. There's that obvious fear of, okay, this one company could lose significant value. But the fear to the upside is something else. Let's just say someone who has bought a high-flying tech stock. Maybe they bought it 10 years ago, and now it's become this outsized portion of their wealth. And there's this fear to decide of, well, I know I should sell this, but I don't want to incur any taxes. Or I know I should reduce my position, but it's done so well for me the past 10 years, I'm fearful of, of missing out on future gains. There are some people who are handcuffed because their 401k matches their contribution in company stock. So they've got a big position. When we're talking about a percentage of, of stock in your portfolio, how much is too much? 
Well, whether it's company stock or an individual stock, I would recommend limiting that exposure to 5% of your overall net worth. Circumstances like Enron, they are rare. It's really not worth the risk. There's no need for it. What if your company matches in company stock and you, as long as you're working for that company, you can't diversify as much as you would like to? How do you balance? Well, certain plans, they allow for the liquidation of company shares. It's usually not uh, something that you can do on a daily basis, but at various points in the year, whether it's an ESOP, whether it's within a a 401k plan. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I have not encountered a, a plan that does not permit for periodic liquidation along the way. Do you recommend that people think about giving away their shares? I think that would be a really good way to both deal with tax implications and also Mm -hmm. the emotional piece of it, right? Like if you can't stomach selling off what grandma gave you, you can gift it. Makes you feel good all around and also saves you on taxes. Definitely. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you're to gift anything, usually the most efficient asset class to gift is a appreciated stock. You know, a great vehicle to use would be something like a donor-advised fund where you can take a certain amount of shares, essentially shift it into this donor-advised fund. The funds are still managed, and you're not incurring any tax implications, meaning you haven't technically sold the stocks, and you get the tax write-off for making the gift. And then once it's in the donor-advised fund, it's then sold. Generally, it's invested in a broader pool of investments, more diversified, And then you have greater flexibility as to when and how much you can gift to the charity or entity of your choice. So absolutely sold, Ed. Gifting individual shares, I I recommend that regularly. One of the other ways to lessen the tax impact is with what we call tax loss harvesting. I can't say it, but I'm hoping you can explain it. (laughs) Definitely. And this really applies to non-retirement accounts. Sometimes we'll call them taxable accounts. So you can, in periods of market correction or market decline, you can intentionally realize losses in your non-retirement accounts. Well, why would you do that? I'm losing money. You are, but you have the flexibility to harvest or realize those losses. And as long as you don't reinvest the money in the exact or, or similar investment, you can then put your money back in the market. You've now harvested these losses which you can carry forward and use to offset either ordinary income up to $3,000 a year, or you can use it to offset future capital gains generated in that account. So um, fourth quarter of 2018, there was uncertainty around what the Fed was going to do. There was rising trade tensions with China. Market dropped by 20%. I reached out to a number of clients and said, you have the opportunity to harvest losses will then shift your portfolio into something that will not create what's called a wash sale. Let's just say, for example, you bought company XYZ. It dropped by 20%. You sold your shares. And then the very next day, you went back and bought company XYZ. Those losses are disallowed. All right. So you cannot use those. So you want to be tactical in how you do this. But going back to my example, we harvested losses. We reinvested this money in the non-retirement account. Therefore, the client was not out of the market. And then, as we all know, what followed was a pretty substantial rise in the market. And many of those clients are up substantially in their accounts. And so going back to this idea of fear to the upside, whether it's a diversified portfolio or whether it's an individual stock, in the long run, it it can be a very useful strategy to implement. A lot of terminology, I think, John, and important strategies for people 
to dig into. And I think if you have questions, uh, the webinar that you've been talking about on wealth preservation and and protection is a is a good thing for people to to think about. Of course, of course. So if you want to discuss concentrated stock positions, Tuesday, March first, we're holding a webinar: three strategies to help preserve and protect your wealth. That's Tuesday, March 1st at 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern. If you're interested, just visit us online at planefe.com. If you're looking for additional resources on all of these things, but also just a, a continuing source of information about your own financial life, I hope you'll go to my website. It's called hermoneyhermoney.com and sign up for our free newsletter. We talk every week. I, I sit down and put together a digest of the important things that you need to know are impacting your money. It'll show up in your inbox every Tuesday, and it's a, it's a good way to get a sense of the week. And if you have a question or a topic that you'd like to throw into the mix or the hodgepodge of topics (laughs) that we talk about on this show, visit our website. It's everydaywealth.com. You can send us a question. You can send us a show idea. We are actively looking for them. If you missed last week's show, the podcast is available there as well. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Soledad O'Brien along with Gene Chatsky. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you back here next week. You're listening to Everyday Wealth. Join us for our brand new webinar, Three Strategies to Help Preserve and Protect Your Wealth, on Tuesday, March 1st. You'll get answers to questions like, what should I do if I own too much of one stock? Which retirement account should I consider taking withdrawals from first? And more. Get helpful insights and tips you can put into action. Join us March 1st for this webinar, Three Strategies to Help Preserve and Protect Your Wealth. Register now for free at planefe.com. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.